0: Hey, it's Alice. Just a quick reminder before we get started that the views you're going to hear on the show today belong to Jim, me, and our guests. They don't reflect the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Okay, here's the show.
1: That if you go to war, you go in with
2: overwhelming military force. We have over 100,000 transgender veterans. Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Welcome
0: to Thank You For Your Service, a conversation with practitioners, scholars, artists, and you about the relationship between the military and civilians. I'm Alice Friend. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a visiting research professor at the U.S. Army War College. I worked at the Pentagon as a civilian in the office of the Secretary of Defense.
2: And I'm Jim Golby. I served as an Army officer for 20 years, now I'm a senior fellow at the Clement Center at the University of Texas, Austin. On this podcast, we consider the civilian and military perspectives on war, government, politics, and service.
0: Well, Jim, my friend, this week was Veterans Day. Last week was the election. How are we doing?
2: I don't know about you, Alice, but um, I'm a mix of thoughts and emotions right now You know, somehow I'm still optimistic, but I'm worried at the same time. On the one hand, Veterans Day always reminds me of the honor and integrity of our military forces and makes me think about and reach out to a lot of good friends. And the election, despite all the difficulties and the aftermath, was a really inspiring exercise of democracy. More Americans voted than had ever voted before, and it was the highest turnout in 112 years. But the election also reiterated just how entrenched our polarized politics are, and the firing of Secretary Esper and the shakeup at DOD just reminded us of just how tumultuous civil-military relations have been over the last few years. We're really headed into unusual territory right now.
0: Yeah, I feel the same way. And I think we're not alone. We usually try to make our episodes timeless, and we have some lasting topics to cover. But maybe this week we should also take a little time and just talk about what's happening and what it might
2: mean. Yeah, that sounds good. After all, Veterans Day and presidential elections are both good reasons to ask, where have we been and where are we going?
0: So that's what we're doing this week on Thank You for Your Service. We're talking about America, civic duty, service, and what's next. Jim. Did you know that Veterans Day used to be Armistice Day to celebrate the cessation of hostilities in World War I? The ceasefire happened on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of the year. So Veterans Day is always on November 11th, no matter what day of the week it falls on. That's why it's not always a Monday holiday.
2: I did know that, actually. Of course you did. Also, we've celebrated it for 100 years, but it didn't become a national holiday until an act of Congress made it one in 1938. The U.S. celebrated it as Armistice Day until 1954. By then, World War II and the Korean War had both happened. Veterans organizations had lobbied Congress to change the holiday to one that recognized all American War veterans. So Congress amended the act that had created the holiday. And President Eisenhower put the VA secretary in charge of coordinating Veterans Day activities across the country.
0: Okay, but did you know that this year, the VA commemorated the 1990-1991 Persian Gulf War for Veterans Day?
2: Oh, you got me there. I did not know that. But I do remember the Gulf War. Did you know that the VA estimates that between 1775 and 1991, more than 41 million Americans served in the military during wartime? And almost 17 million war veterans still live in the United States today.
0: I think the best part of Veterans Day is that it brings Americans together to express gratitude for national service. One of the nice things about military service being nonpartisan is that celebrating it is something that all Americans can do without worrying about their partisan identity one way or the other.
2: It really does recall this notion of national emergencies overwhelming our other divisions and creating a common cause that we can all rally behind. But, you know, there's also a lot of mythology there. Wars have always been controversial throughout our history. We always think of Vietnam in that vein, but remember that even the world wars of the 20th century were politically really unsettled before we entered them. And for all the unity we had on 9-11, so much of that has disappeared since.
0: We've talked a couple of times on the show about who serves. It's a big question for civil military relations scholars for a number of reasons, especially since Vietnam and the subsequent shift to the all-volunteer force. Which parts of our society bear the burdens of going to war? And how do we choose?
2: The United States has solved its manpower problems with conscription or the draft, since the Civil War. In the Union states, all men between the ages of 20 and 45 had to register. But the wealthy could often buy their way out of it.
0: Just prior to World War I, President Woodrow Wilson established the Selective Service System. We still have that system today, and it is still compulsory for American men to register within a month of their 18th birthdays.
2: The draft has always been controversial, but I'm not sure the controversy was ever as pitched as it was during Vietnam.
1: The Draft Lottery, a live report on tonight's picking of the birth dates for the draft. Here at Selective Service Headquarters in Washington is CBS News correspondent Roger Mudd. Good evening. It was 29 years ago that the first and most famous lottery number, 158, was drawn as the United States entered World War II. Tonight, for the first time in uh, 27 years, the United States has again started a draft lottery. And the famous first pick tonight is September 14th, the first birthday that now is designated 001, which means for 19-year-olds born on September 14th,
2: that beginning
1: uh, in January, local draft boards will induct those men born on September 14th, barring deferments. The next birthday in order, April 24th, and and so on down the line this evening.
0: Protests against the draft, including questions about its fairness and the quality of a conscripted military, eventually led President Nixon to abolish the practice and transition to an all-volunteer force.
2: But the idea and a memory of a draft persists today, sometimes as a kind of straw man to measure other ideas against.
3: Everybody wants to use the draft to solve for problems that are not actually why the draft was instituted, to solve anything at all. In my view, the reason that we have a selective service system is that in some national emergencies we need to move forcefully move civilian labor over to national security purposes and we can't do so more efficiently or cheaply or quickly or effectively than by having a, a system where we are drawing numbers and moving people over into to national security or military is the roles. And that means that so many things have failed along the way. Both our planning has failed, our recruitment system has failed, our all-volunteer force, our ability to predict any kind of national security crises going forward and to really prepare for it. And also our ability, I think, in some ways, to bring in other elements of national power into our our national security apparatus.
0: That was Lauren DeYoung Shulman. Lauren has served at the FBI, the Pentagon, and the National Security Council. Until just recently, she was the Deputy Director of Studies at the Center for a New American Security. Now she's the Vice President for Research Analysis and Evaluation at the Partnership for Public Service.
2: We asked Lauren to talk to us about the draft but also about what conversations about the draft tell us about how the government tries and too frequently fails to attract talent from the American population.
3: Okay, so let's talk about some of the things that people like to talk about the draft solving. One of them is the ability for the national security apparatus to bring in talents that it does not have easily resident within its, uh, in the military itself or in the national security civilian community. And I am sympathetic to this because they're totally right. I have said this so many times where we don't necessarily have at hand the, both the number and types and diversity of talent that America needs to solve some of its national security challenges. And people always go straight to like, we need software engineers and AI specialists. And yes, that's totally true, we do. But we also need more people who speak and understand Chinese. We need more people who are, have clear relationships and understanding of our allies. We need more people who can marry the linkages between economic power, national security challenges, the technology workforce, and our human capital needs. All of these things are things that we will need in uh, great power competition if we think that's that's a big deal. Now, my problem with using the draft for this is that I think we actually have that talent resident in the United States and even better, I think a lot of that talent wants to work in government. We just have made it super hard for them to go in in the kinds of capacities and the length of time and at the levels that they want to be able to do so. That remark
0: about talent wanting to break into government led me to ask Lauren about her research into the federal national security workforce, many of whom are civilians.
3: Civil servants are highly mission-driven, more so than the private sector. If you ask them to go the extra mile in their work, if they're willing to do that, they were, I think it's like something like over 90% of them say that absolutely, yes, this is something that is important to me. The mission of what I do is important to me every day. The idea that there's a civil service out there that is just there for the paycheck or the stability or the protections that they receive, and that's it, is a myth. And it's a myth that perpetuates in a bipartisan manner from administration to administration. And it's frankly a really popular hobby horse for people to beat. The national security workforce in particular are people who have made sacrifices by the requirements of their security clearance or the requirements of their job to dedicate hours and sometimes deploy in some of the environments that we see in the military without some of the support and protections that the military itself receives. Uh, they don't ha- receive the mental health treatment, they don't necessarily receive the kind of health treatment or the long-term training education benefits that the military does as well. I don't wanna put mm-hmm. these in terms of equivalent in terms of the sort of tasks that they perform, but there is a lot of challenges that the national security workforce experiences that are similar to the military where they don't get the same kind of attention, the same kind of investment or the same kind of political priority as their uniform counterparts do. So. With that as our predicate, the workforce overall in the civilian sector, it experiences a lot of challenges. It takes, even when you're not encountering the security clearance requirements, it takes about twice as long to hire somebody into the federal workforce as it does in the private sector. So if you are the smartest kid in your class from Stanford and you get a job offer from Google the day that you interview versus a job offer that you may not hear from anybody from the USA Jobs website for six months. And then you'll find out that they lost your application. You're probably going to take the Google one, even if you're a super public spirited, public minded person. And that we mm-hmm. still find that people want to serve in the federal government. There are there's surveys that like have demonstrated that. It remains one of the top interest careers for people across the college-age population. We don't set up our recruitment processes as though we really want high-quality talent to get in. It's as though it's a game where we try to see how much is your patience. Then when people get in, the environments that we are putting our civil service through right now is generating a lot of trends that contribute to low morale.
2: Lauren talked to us about the seemingly relentless barrage of government shutdowns, furloughs, Leadership turnover, and involvement in domestic partisan politics that the Federal Civil Service has been enduring in recent years.
0: It made me think about my work on civilians and what civilians need to do to keep civil military relations healthy. If they are going to be able to give good guidance to the military to conduct oversight and manage budgets and support operations, their value needs to be recognized and invested in. I asked her why she thinks we lionize the military and demonize the civil service. She said it partly has to do with most Americans' interactions with bureaucrats being pretty unglamorous and often frustrating. But she also said it's a visibility issue. So much of what civil servants do isn't transparent to the average
3: American. And I don't think we're ever going to be in a world where the the day-to-day CIA analyst who is looking at Burundi is going to be held up as the same kind of hero as a Navy SEAL. And there's good reasons for that. But on the other hand, I think that we have... Really negative automatic assumptions about that CIA analyst and what they do every day, and really positive ones about that Navy SEAL and what they do every day without investigating what those specifics are.
2: Of course, Americans are also pretty unaware and underinformed about what military personnel do on a day to day basis. A lot of what they think they know is really affected by their partisan biases or what they see on TV. Conversations about civil servants happen through those filters too.
3: People try to paint the, the civil service uh, or the deep state and enter the national security world, depending on what a uh, sort of like proxy outcome they're hoping for. Like there is either a secret force within the federal government in a basement somewhere who is fighting for good, like the Avengers, that's always going to mm-hmm. come out on your side. Or it's the incompetent bureaucrats who are hosing everything up for a, a new political appointee. Or it's the competent bureaucrats who are purposely going out to sabotage. There's never a narrative of like, actually, these guys just like show up to work every day and they investigate the weather. They try to warn American people about risks, to their safety, security and health. They find ways to invest in small businesses and farms and they do so every day, no matter if they have a vacancy at the top of their organization or if they have a political appointee of any kind of party. And I think it's highly undervalued.
0: When we taped our interview with Lauren, it was looking increasingly likely that Biden would reach 270 electoral college votes. So we talked for a bit about what we all think the major issues in civil-military relations will be for the next administration. One of Lauren's catchphrases is process is my valentine because she believes in a good policymaking process, and I share that commitment. And Jim, you said something I keep thinking about.
2: I do think there will be huge changes in terms of process, huge changes in terms of stability, many fewer surprises, but people are gonna expect military leaders to show their work. And many of those people are going to be young, smart, talented women. And it is going to, I think even more so than it would in a normal transition from a sort of Bush administration to an Obama administration, there is going to be a shock to senior military leaders who have not been dealing with that for the last four years, who will all of a sudden have a normal process working more or less like it should. Yes, the so-called delegation model that Trump followed, with of course some notable and unpredictable interventions every so often, coupled with the serious drop in public transparency, I think that got the building used to less scrutiny. Moving away from that will be good, but it will also be hard for a building that's gotten used to a less substantively engaged White House.
0: Lauren talked about what you and I have addressed a lot, this worry that the Trump administration treated the military like a partisan voting constituency, or like individuals who either were or were not sufficiently loyal to the president, rather than like the nonpartisan professionals they are supposed to be. I imagine the sensitivities of that will continue into the next administration as well.
2: I think you're right. And even though the administration definitely was the worst offender, politicians on both sides of the aisle often did the same thing during the election. Both campaigns once again leveraged the credibility of retired generals and flag officers, and even used pictures of officers in uniform in political ads. Politicians across the political spectrum need to understand their own role in politicizing the military. It's just not healthy.
0: So, Jim, as of this recording, we've had some personnel shakeups at the Pentagon after the media, at any rate, has declared Joe Biden the next president-elect of the United States. And it seems quite clear from all the vote tallies that that call is, in fact, factually accurate. But we also have the, the outgoing president, President Trump, doing some unusual things at DOD. One of those things was to, as he put it in a tweet, terminate the secretary of defense, Secretary Esper, immediately and replace him with the confirmed director of the National Counterterrorism Center. And then shortly thereafter, a couple of other senior level civilians at DOD resigned, one of them the acting undersecretary for policy and the other the acting, no, the actual confirmed undersecretary for intelligence, excuse me. And then we also saw a new chief of staff for DOD transitioned in. What do we make of all this?
2: Even those who have long been vocal supporters of President Trump know that he often takes very controversial approaches to things, And this is one that's really unprecedented, uh, at least in my opinion. I don't remember a time where we've seen this big of a shakeup in senior political appointees at the Pentagon this late in administration, particularly after an election. And it's it's really quite shocking to see, even with all of the personnel changes that we've seen over the last four years. I've been trying to make sense of, of what I think it means and even why we saw it, but I'm curious what you think, Alice, what do you think, as someone who's focused so much on civilian roles in the Pentagon, what do you think this means for civilian control? What, is, what do you think this means we're likely to see over the next few months from the administration?
0: Yeah, so the thing that strikes me first and foremost is that as I'm constantly trying to convince people, civilian control of the military is not just an abstract principle, it's actually a practice. And that practice is a combination of expertise and experience and activities that you undertake and also legitimacy. and Part of the legitimacy of senior civilian roles at the Pentagon is that you are Senate confirmed to do the job you're doing. So you have gone through a public process where senators on the Senate Armed Services Committee have asked you questions about how you intend to run the building. And then there's also an understanding that because you've been nominated by the president to fill this role, you have that political legitimacy as well. And so that when you are filling these roles, you have the political authority that goes with the formal authority of the role, right? So other than Chris Miller, who's now the acting secretary, I don't think you have that Senate confirmed process at all. So it's not good news on the civilian control, the military side, in my view.
2: Yeah, I think the the timing is what's sort of unique and alarming about it to me. There have been rumors for, I mean, I would go back at least four or five months that President Trump was unhappy with Secretary Esper, that he thought he was being obstructionist on Afghanistan withdrawals, on some CT issues, as well as possibly on development of options for Iran. Then you had um, the events in Lafayette Square and Esper's public pushback on President Trump's what seemed to be inclination to lean toward using the Insurrection Act domestically. And so I don't think it is a surprise necessarily that there was this sort of tension and conflict, but to do that removal with so many other positions at once after the election really does put you in a position where you can't steer the ship of the Pentagon in lasting ways, and it may be even hard to turn the entire organization in ways that will last beyond the presidency. So it really does raise questions about Are there particular initiatives that the president thinks he wants to try to do? Are there things that he sees as particularly valuable with respect to foreign policy or defense policy that he wants to jump on right now? And, you know, as you noted, there are big questions of legitimacy. Chris Miller has a great reputation. He's been a CT professional. He had a career in the military, but Again, part of that is a bit of the problem. He's not even in a position where he could be nominated to be the secretary of defense yet, because like Secretary Mattis was, he is still less than seven years out of his active duty service and would not qualify as an appointee. So there are all sorts of just really odd things about this. But I think at the end of the day, at least to me, it looks like President Trump was frustrated about the pushback he's been getting. And so there's probably a bit of a response to that that he is trying to to take on.
0: The president never really got a secretary of defense who fully aligned with him. And what we're hearing now is that as much as Esper seemed to be much more pliant (laughs) than Mattis was in terms of doing what the president wanted, he still... Uh, as you pointed out, was preventing the President from doing a lot of things he wanted to do, and so the you know the president kind of never got the secretary he wanted right and This is one of the things again about civilian control is that you know unity between all the major civilian leaders is really important because otherwise they spend their time arguing with each
2: other you know I think this is a common problem, and I think we're going to see it with a new administration that will have different ideas about technology, different ideas about budgets, different ideas about how you run the Pentagon and who runs the Pentagon and what you're running toward. You know, I think hopefully people are paying attention to this period, not just as a question of, you know, what have we seen over the last four years and why is it unique, but also what have we seen over the last four years that might help us better understand how to move a big bureaucracy like this more effectively and hopefully reinforce just how important this position of Secretary of Defense is in this relationship of civilian control in being sort of the bridge between the White House, the Hill, and the Uniformed Military Services.
0: Yes, and if listeners have any ideas for how I can incorporate this particular era of civilian control of the military into my book that is about civilian control of the military, give me a call.
2: On Veterans Day, I think of everyone I've served with, primarily those in uniform, of course. But I also think about people like my dad, who came in at the end of World War II, and all the older vets who served in the Korean War and Vietnam, who haven't gotten the same recognition that people in my generation have. That's the main focus of the holiday. But Veterans Day also makes me think of civilians who supported me when I was in uniform, and those who support our national security more broadly every day who serve at all levels of our government and society. In other words, Veterans Day is a good excuse to think about public service more generally too.
0: Every time we invite someone on the show, we ask them what service means to them and we get incredible answers.
2: Here are some of our favorites. There are so many ways to serve
0: America, America's Corps, Peace Corps. There's so many ways to serve our country. And so thankful to our police, firemen, Again, first responders, medical people, especially during this pandemic. And I just wanna thank people who take the time to serve our country. She's worth serving. When I think of service and giving and giving back, I think a key part of that is showing your own moral courage to do the right thing. I think one of the beautiful things to come out of this terrible pandemic is a realization on the part of certainly me, but I think Americans more broadly, just how much we rely on the day-in, day-out service of healthcare providers, of garbage collectors, of teachers, and how much they too do service to the Republic. Speaking for the middle-aged, reckless college professor demographic, my service is stomping my dainty little cloven hoofs and arguing for what is and isn't appropriate. And you're welcome
3: for my service, people. I would say it's trying to make things just a little bit better it doesn't have to be a lot better, just a little bit better. That's the goal. Each time you do it just a little bit better. I often kind of just, you
2: know, tongue in cheek joke and tell people "Well, you're welcome for my service. But like, <laughs> if you Really, if you really want to show me that you're thankful you will go out and, and engage in aspects of your community to make it a better place. Service to me means attaching yourself to an idea that is greater than yourself and has a positive net impact on society.
3: There is something out there for everybody to get involved in, whether it's the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, standing up for racial justice. There is something that really makes you heated. Whatever makes you angry, it's probably a good indication of something that you want to be involved in. And there's probably somebody already doing it in your local community. Go find those people. Get started, get to work. We are super lucky to live in the country that we live in right now and to be able to think of it as a work in progress and be able to contribute ideas and labor and partnerships to be able to think through how to make it better on an ongoing basis. Happy Veterans Day, America
0: the Beautiful. From sea to shining sea.
2: That's our show for today. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We love to hear from our listeners. Please follow us on Twitter. We're at thankyouforyourservice underscore podcast. So at T-Y-F-Y-S underscore podcast.
2: And send us an email with your favorite dad jokes and whatever else you'd like us to think about for the show. Our address is tyfyspodcast at gmail.com. Polite notes and dad jokes only, please.
0: (laughs) Thanks for joining us. See you next time.